This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to this video on eight signs you may be toxic. I'm your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. In the past, I've talked a lot about identifying signs of toxic relationships and dealing with toxic people, but a lot of times I've focused on dealing with others, assuming that we are not the toxic ones. But sometimes, you know what? We are the toxic ones. So let's start out with what are toxic relationship behaviors? Well, these are behaviors that develop through observation or sometimes necessity. So when you were growing up, if your parents were toxic, if they behaved in toxic ways or what some call emotionally immature ways, then you may have learned that form of communication. When you're born, you're not learn you you're you're not born knowing how to communicate assertively. You're not born knowing how to form healthy relationships. You learn all this from your attachments and you start out learning this from your primary caregivers, from your primary attachment. And if they're toxic, guess what? You're going to learn toxic behaviors. So sometimes you learn it through observation. And sometimes you learn it through necessity. And that goes back to those toxic caregivers too. Sometimes you learn these behaviors as a method of staying safe, as a method of surviving your environment. And I'll give you examples as we go through. Toxic behaviors are still behaviors and may have been helpful or accepted in the past in what are usually toxic situations. And this can be with caregivers or in other relationships or with friends. Unfortunately, as a society right now, there's a lot of toxicity. So it's important to evaluate relationships on a case-by-case basis. We also have to remember that behaviors are communication. And toxic behaviors may indicate a lack of trust. If you feel threatened, if you feel um, vulnerable around someone, you don't trust them to not hurt you, to not abandon you, then you may engage in these toxic behaviors. You may engage in these toxic behaviors to avoid abandonment or rejection. I will be the chameleon that you want me to be, just don't reject me. Or I am going to, you know, be all about me and I'm not going to care about you. So if you reject me, I don't care. Or they can serve for people who have a need to always be in control. Because in the past, when they weren't in control, bad things happened. 
So the first one we're going to talk about is boundary violations. Remember, boundaries come in five different forms. Physical boundaries, those are pretty obvious. That is the space between me and you. And people who violate your physical boundaries um, repeatedly are can be toxic if they are, um, well, it's pretty obvious. However, with boundaries, sometimes we have to tell people, that's too close. I need you to back up a little bit. Or, you know, please don't hug me. That that just feels weird. I don't know you well enough for you to be in my space like that. Uh, affective boundaries. That's how we feel. And when people tell us how we feel is wrong, when they tell us how we should feel, then that is violating our emotional boundaries. That's saying how you feel is wrong or I'm not going to listen to how you feel. Same thing with cognitive boundaries. That's what you think about, your opinions, your thoughts, your desires. People who violate your cognitive boundaries are going to tell you you're wrong, you're stupid, or they're just not even going to ask your thoughts. They're going to tell you what to think. And those are boundary violations, and that's toxic. Environmental. And, and another boundary violation that's cognitive is gaslighting. You know, and that kind of goes along with telling you you're wrong. You think something is one way and you're the toxic per person tries to tell you it's another way. So if you're one of those people that uh, is regularly trying to tell people how to think, how to feel, or invading their boundaries, then you might be being toxic. Environmental boundary violations, and I see this a lot in relationships, and it even among families, but also in personal relationships. That's people's stuff, people's space, and that includes their phone and their email. When you start snooping in people's stuff or borrowing or taking people's stuff without permission, that's a boundary violation. Now, sometimes it's not that big of a deal, like if you borrow your significant other sweatshirt. You know, I think I have four or five of my husband's sweatshirts in my closet right now. Um, but other times it is a big deal. Like if you start um, trying to secretly go through your significant other's um, email or text messages, or you put a tracker on their phone and they don't know about it, or maybe they even do know about it, but they don't want it there, you do it anyway. That is a boundary violation. And relational boundary violations. This is telling somebody who they can and can't be friends with. This is telling people how they should act in relationships instead of letting them be themselves. So if you're constantly trying to mold how somebody behaves in relationships and you give them permission who to be friends with, then... That's a boundary violation and usually a toxic behavior. Now, what I perceive as toxic may not be the same as what you perceive as toxic. So, or what your significant other perceives as toxic. So it's important to communicate with your significant other about what their boundaries are and what feels like a boundary violation for them. That way you know. And if you insist on violating that boundary, then you need to really ask yourself why. What's going on here?
the function of boundary violations is usually safety. Where did it come from? Well, a lot of times you may have been in an environment where you um, learned that it's not safe to allow people space. If you allow them space, they will abandon you. They will hurt you. They will take advantage of you. Or you grew up in an environment where your boundaries were never respected. So you don't, you never learned how to respect anybody else's boundaries. You know, it could come, come from either place. And it's important for you to look inside you and say, is this something I learned from growing up in a toxic household? Or is this something I'm doing because I feel unsafe? Or both. So a tip, define your boundaries. What do your boundaries look like? Have your significant other define their boundaries and share what your boundaries are. That way you're both on the same page. Don't assume that their physical boundaries are the same as yours or their um, environmental boundaries are the same as yours. You know, maybe they were raised a slightly different way. So it's important to communicate. Think about times your boundaries were violated and how you felt. That gives you some perspective. And then you can say, well, I wonder, you can start extrapolating and thinking about how your significant other might feel when their boundaries are violated. When you feel the need to violate other people's boundaries, like you just feel this undying urge that you've got to go check your significant other's text messages. Uh, explore why. What are you afraid will happen if you respect their boundaries, if you don't go snooping, or if you let them be friends with somebody that you find intimidating or threatening in some way? Um, controlling is another toxic behavior. Only supporting your significant others if they do what you want them to do. It's my way or the highway. Or trying to make them see how they can't live without you. So there are two different kind of shades of controlling. One's more overt and the other one's more covert. And again, the function comes back to safety. If... I tell you this is the way it's got to be, then I'm in control. And if I'm in control, then bad things are less likely to happen. In the past, when I haven't been in control, bad things have happened. Or you're controlling because you were taught that you're, you deserve to get your way all the time. So you tell people how it's going to be because you feel entitled to get your way. So this could happen because the only time you were safe was when you were in control or because your caregivers were hyper controlling. Maybe your caregivers told you what to do and that's how you learn to interact with others. This is how I'm supposed to behave. I'm supposed to tell other people what they're supposed to do, what they're supposed to think, how they're supposed to feel. Or you grew up in an environment where controlling others was rewarded. You were told that you deserve to get your own way all the time. So make it happen. Tips. Notice your controlling behaviors for a week and try to identify their benefit. When you start being controlling, 
Ask yourself, why am I doing this? To what end? Explore what would realistically happen if the other person was in control or you quit micromanaging. Now, for a lot of people, that's terrifying. It's like, wow, if I, if I let go of the reins a little bit, you know, all hell's going to break loose. And maybe that's true. Or maybe it's not. What facts do you have? What do you know? And just intentionally start asking your significant others their opinions and thoughts. It goes a long way to reducing the amount of control you're trying to exert if you start getting other people's input. Instead of being a CEO in an ivory tower somewhere, you're part of a team that makes team decisions. Help us continue to make practical tools available to everyone by supporting the channel. You can donate any amount at docsnipes.com donate or at Cash App at docsnipes. Become a member of the YouTube channel at docsnipes.com join. Purchase a super thanks on videos that are particularly helpful or even earn your continuing education at allceus.com. Another toxic behavior is jealousy. Now, remember, jealousy is a form of anger. Anger at somebody for having something you want or threatening to take something you have. So jealousy represents a reaction to a threat. If you're um, jealous of other people, your significant other is around. You may fear abandonment or you may selfishly be demanding attention and time. It's like, no, I want you to spend all your time with me. So we want to look at why is it that you can't spend time alone? What's scary about being alone? Another toxic form of jealousy is being jealous of your significant other's successes or your friend's successes. If their successes make you feel threatened, you want to explore that. That generally indicates a low self-esteem or a um, esteem that's based on what you do instead of who you are. Their success makes you angry because you feel entitled. So if your significant other gets a promotion and a raise and, you know, that's wonderful awesome for them. But instead of being happy for them, you're like, I've been working just as hard and I have more education. So I deserve to make more money and I should have gotten a promotion by now. And I should have done this. That's toxic. That's really toxic. That undermines your significant other's joy and their success. The function of jealousy could be grief. You know, you could be grieving the fact that you're not getting your way. Your dreams are not coming true and theirs are. And so being jealous is the anger part of that grieving process. And, and it's important to look at that. Jealousy can also come from entitlement. If you feel entitled to something or if you're afraid that you're going to lose something and you need to have it. It can come from being angry about things that you were deprived of, you know, looking around at other people who have, who have stuff that you want 
and being angry because you feel like you should have had that. You should have had that childhood. You should have had that opportunity. Um, and it can just come from, you know, feelings of uh, fear of abandonment. So notice your controlling behaviors for a week and or your jealous behaviors for a week and try to identify their benefit. When you get jealous, what are you afraid of? What is the threat? How is it, how is that jealousy in some way protecting you? Explore what would realistically happen if you trusted the other person and you were happy for them, you were just genuinely happy for them instead of being jealous. If you used them maybe as, you know, a model, something to work towards, Hey, they have this. If they got, did it, then I can do it too. Instead of looking at it and going, well, they have that. I deserve it. And then not wanting to work toward it or being angry about it. You know, there's a different approach. Frequent lying is another toxic behavior. And sometimes people lie to make themselves look better. They may talk about things that actually never happened because they want to seem more important or more valuable or more lovable. Or they may lie to make excuses for things they did wrong because they're afraid if they're imperfect that they'll be rejected. Or they may lie to try to make the other person jealous in order to avoid rejection. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to lie and tell you, um, about how things are going so wonderful in my life. So you can want to be with me. Lying often is designed to help people feel safer, either from abandonment. I'm going to make myself look good. So you won't ever leave me or from harm. If I tell you the truth, then I might get severely punished. Sometimes lying is just quite honestly, because you've learned that if you lie, you can get your own way. Where does it come from? Well, maybe the only time you were loved was when you were what other people wanted you to be. So you figured out how to create these stories in order to be more lovable. Or Maybe you lied in order to appease your caregivers who may have been very controlling and very critical. So you figured out that you needed to lie in order to fly under the radar, in order to avoid punishment. So notice your lying behaviors. What's the motivation for them? When you lie, each time you lie, think to yourself, why did I just do that? What are you afraid would have happened if you told the truth? What will be the consequences of lying in the relationship if you get caught? And this is true whether you're talking about lying to your boss or lying to your significant others or whatever. In terms of toxic, generally we're talking about, you know, humans or individuals. Self-centeredness is another toxic behavior. Always thinking about what you want first. When it comes time to go on a family vacation, you think about what you want. When it comes time to go out to dinner, you pick the restaurant because you know what you want to eat. When, it, when you're wanting to move, 
you decide where the whole family's going to live based on what's most important to you. You're oblivious to the other person's thoughts, wants, and needs, or you just don't care. You're looking around going, yeah, it, it's about me. And if you're not happy, you need to figure out how to, how to fix that. But I'm taking care of me. Or assuming their thoughts, want, wants, and needs are the same as yours. Assuming, for example, that they want to move to the city and live in a walkable community with no yard. Or assuming that they want to move to be closer to your family. Um, anytime you assume, that is self-centered. And that self-centeredness is a very toxic behavior. So again, what's the function of self-centeredness? Well, you don't get hurt if you don't care about others. If you are worried only about you and you feel like, you know what? Nobody else is going to do it for me. I'm going to do it for myself. You're going to get your way. You're going to theoretically satisfy your own needs. And it can feel much less threatening. It can feel much less vulnerable. Where did it come from? Well, a lot of people learn to be self-centered because either they were taught to be entitled, they were taught that their thoughts, wants, needs were more important than anybody else's, or because nobody else met their needs. And if they wanted to get their needs met, if they wanted food in their belly, if they wanted comfort, if they wanted whatever, they had to do it themselves. So they learned to look out for number one. Tips. Make a list of 10 times that you have been self-centered. What could you have done differently to be more other-centered or be more compassionate? And these can be simple things like if you decided to go out on a date and instead of asking your date what they wanted to do, you told them what to do. Or uh, you decided for the family what you were going to do for a family vacation instead of getting input. What are the positive and negative consequences of self-centeredness? Now, here's a tip. We don't do things and continue to do things unless there's a benefit. So there is a benefit. You need to look at what the benefits and the drawbacks are and decide for yourself, are you motivated to be less self-centered? If you are, then start each day envisioning how you're going to be less self-centered. So think about, okay, when I get up, um, I'm going to go downstairs and, hey, you know what? I'm going to make coffee today so everybody has it when they get up. I'm going to say good morning to people when I walk into the office. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. Um, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to use the uh, barista's name when I order my coffee at the coffee shop, <laughs> whatever it is. But being less self-focused and more aware of what's going on around me and trying to make an impact on that. And then at the end of each day, review how you did. How many of those things that you wanted to do that day to be less self-centered were you successful in doing? For most people, they start out strong. First two, three, four tasks of the day, 
they knock those out. Then by the time we get to work or maybe lunchtime, if it's a really good day, they're back on autopilot. That's okay. That is okay. You started out strong. That's progress. So setting small goals. So next time, you know, maybe next week you make it past lunch. And then the week after that, you're carrying that other centeredness into the evening when you get home. Poor communication is another toxic behavior. Passive aggressive behavior is often being passive and saying, okay, it's fine, whatever, but not really meaning it. And then holding on to resentment when the person takes you at your word. You said it was fine, so I'm not going to change it or I'm not going to address it. And then you get angry about it and you just hold on to that anger and resentment. That's toxic because that anger and resentment ends up coming out. It bleeds out in your behaviors, in your nonverbals, and sometimes in your words. Or you may be aggressive and not willing to listen. And aggressiveness is a behavior that comes out when we feel angry or when we feel threatened. So thinking back again, in what way is that aggressive behavior protecting you? And mind reading and expecting mind reading is your third example of poor communication. When you assume you know what other people are thinking and you act on that, that's toxic. That is not respecting them and their thoughts, wants, and needs. And when you expect mind reading, it's not, it, mind reading is not possible. So when you expect it, then you're expecting them to just know things when you haven't told them. And that's not fair. That's setting, that's creating an unwinnable situation. And that's toxic. Many people will engage in all three of these communication um, problems. The function keeps you safe. You learn that aggressive behavior helps you get your way, helps you control things, help you stay safe. You've learned that passive aggressive behavior in certain situations prevents you from punishment. You know, if you don't stand up for something, then you won't be rejected or you won't be punished. Or it lets you get your way. Where did it come from? Well, a lot of times poor communication happens because it wasn't safe to have needs or thoughts other than your caregivers when you were growing up. So you learned not to have those and you were passive about everything, but then you felt angry and alone and resentful. Or you learned through observation or experience that aggression worked. So if it worked for you, you used it. You got what you wanted in the moment. But what was the ultimate consequence to the relationship or relationships? And then the whole mind reading thing. If you grew up in a family, especially in a family with someone with a mental health issue or an addiction, a lot of times you were expected to walk on eggshells. You were expect to anticipate their every need or bad things were going to happen. So mind reading may have been something you learned to try to do to stay safe. So tips, 
notice your communication style. Just start becoming aware of how am I communicating with this person about this issue at this time. Think about three things you've been passive about and then held resentment because you didn't get your needs met. What were the consequences of being passive, of not asserting your needs, and then nurturing that resentment? And what are some alternative ways that you could have responded in that situation? Likewise, think about three times you've been aggressive, because most people, again, aren't always one way or the other. What were the consequences in the long haul of your, of your aggressiveness? In the short haul, you may have gotten your own way, but in the long haul, how did it impact your relationship? What might've been some alternatives? What might've been a different way to handle that, that it would have been, um, that, that wouldn't have violated that other person's boundaries when you're aggressive you are just smashing their boundaries. Whatever you're being aggressive about, you're taking away their power. And that's a boundary violation. Blaming and victimhood. Examples, not taking responsibility for your part in a situation or using guilt to manipulate another person. If you would have done this, then I wouldn't have had to do that. Blaming and victimhood is all often learned in order to avoid punishment. If I blame other people, then I'm not going to have to take the punishment. To get your own way. If I blame you, if I make you feel guilty, then I can get you to apologize for something I did. <clears throat> and victimhood sometimes get, gets other people to do things for you. When you are taking that victim role. It is, my life has been so bad. I am completely helpless and powerless and it's all your fault or all the fault of people like you. So you need to do something to fix it. This can come from learning from observation or experience of being the blamer or the blamee. You can learn through experience that if you blame other people for things, that if, if you say, you know, I feel bad and it's your fault, if I blame you for, for it, then I can manipulate you with guilt. Ooh, that's a power move. It's also a boundary violation. So by blaming other people for my misfortunes, then I am taking on that victim stance. So if I've tried that and it's worked, then I might continue to doing it, continue doing it. But at what cost? If you're the blamee, if you are the one who's been guilted and manipulated, you may have learned that this is an appropriate way to get what you want. And this happens a lot in dysfunctional households, in toxic households, where the children are blamed for a lot of things and they learn not to take responsibility because they the grown-ups don't take responsibility. So the kids learn, well, this is how we're supposed to do it. We're supposed to disavow responsibility and blame it on other people. So tips. Well, unfortunately, you had a part. 
So you need to take responsibility. One of the uh, mentors I worked with when I was in community mental health used to call it the three finger rule. When you point your finger at somebody, you've got three fingers pointing back at you. So what was your part? It wasn't all you, but it probably wasn't all them either. So what part do you need to take responsibility for? Find solutions instead of focusing on problems or expecting others to do it for you. If something happened and it's unfortunate, okay. Well, it sucks. And they may have had a part, you may have had a part, but rehashing things that already happened, probably not going to be super helpful. So what's the solution to prevent it from happening again? For example, if somebody in your household gets sick and they come, you know, come home and they're just snotting all over everywhere and they get everybody else in the house sick. Well, okay. Their part was being little germ factories. Your part was maybe poor personal hygiene, getting too close to them. But um, complaining and blaming and guilting them for the fact that you got sick is not going to make you get healthy. It's just not. So instead, asking, all right, I know this person's going to get sick in the future, and I don't want to get sick in the future. So what can we do in the future? And then sitting down and having a conversation about, you know, when... I really don't like getting sick and it would be helpful when you get sick, if you would do X, Y, and Z and I will do, you know, A, B, and C, that way we can prevent this problem in the future. So focusing on the solution instead of just blaming and picking and kvetching about the problem. Same thing is true for finances, for example, but I digress. Explore the consequences of blaming and victimhood. You know, think about if you've been blamed for stuff in the past. How did it make you feel personally? And how did it make you feel toward that person? And how did it make you feel about staying in the relationship with that person? Most of us it, don't want to be in a relationship with somebody who's constantly blaming us, guilting us, manipulating us. And superiority and judgmentalism. This may come out as, hey, you should be grateful you married up. Or constantly criticizing others to make yourself look better. Or holding grudges when other people make a mistake or don't do what you think they should be doing. Our society is very judgmental. Um, what is the saying? You shouldn't throw stones. Uh, people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Um, <clears throat> we need to be careful about asserting superiority or judging others. But what's the function? Well, if I'm superior, then I'm on a pedestal and I can feel good about myself. So that goes back to kind of that self-centeredness. But I am feeding my own ego to try to feel safe, to try to feel acceptable. Or maybe I'm trying to prove to others that I'm lovable. I'm superior, so you've got to love me. You've got to admire me. And if you do that, then I'm acceptable. And 
I'm more lovable than that person over there who makes these mistakes. You know, they're imperfect. Where did you learn this behavior? Well, if your caregivers always treated you as superior and put all your classmates down and told you that you were the best and that you were entitled and regularly criticized other people, they were constantly talking about the neighbors and their friends and, you know, the mistakes they made and the drama they had going on. Well, then guess what? You probably learned that behavior. You, that was normal in your household. Um, so there are most of the time superiority and judgmentalism, uh, are learned behaviors, but they also, as I mentioned, could be used as a means of, um, putting a wall around ourselves or putting us up, putting ourselves up on a pedestal where we feel safe from others, where we don't feel like others will bring us down and, um, trample all over us. Tips, and this one can be hard. Pay attention to how you interact with others. If you feel the need to be judgmental or assert superiority, explore why you need to take another person's power. Why do you need to steal the limelight at the dinner? Why do you need to prove you're smarter than this other person over here or you're smarter than your significant other? Okay, here's the hard part. Argue the opposite. Argue if you're trying, if you're feeling like you're superior, argue all the reasons that they are every bit as good as you are, that you're equals. And why their way may, why their way might be right. If you're being judgmental about what they're doing, you know, they didn't do it your way. Okay, well, step back and argue why their way is right. Or, and or, try compassion. If you dislike somebody's, what somebody is doing, instead of judging them for what they're doing, saying, oh, they shouldn't be doing that, or I, I don't, I could never do that. That's just far below me. All right, well, instead of being judgmental, step back and think of three, we, three reasons why that behavior might be that person's only option. Toxic behaviors were learned at some point and may have served a purpose in a toxic situation, generally to either prevent harm or abandonment or be accepted by toxic significant others. Recognizing your toxic behaviors, their function, and the consequences in the scheme of your relationship is the first step to developing healthier relationships.